My name is Vikram, and I'm your host for today's White Coat Story. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Kamala Tamarisa. Dr. Tamarisa is a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist at Texas Cardiac Arrhythmia in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Tamarisa completed her training in internal medicine and served as chief resident at St. Louis University. She then went on to complete her general cardiology, cardiac electrophysiology, and cardiac MRI fellowships at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In this podcast, you'll hear about Dr. Tamarisa's unique take on how to become a leader in the field of medicine, her fascinating hobbies and how she uses them to decompress after a long day at work. You'll hear her explain the how the heart works in very simple terms and the direction in which her field is moving. Her Twitter handle is at capital K capital T, Amarisa, MD. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Tamarisa. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It's my pleasure to be with you, Vikram, and uh, thank you for the invite. No problem. So, in simple words, what type of medicine do you practice, and what does that type of doctor do? I am a cardiac electrophysiologist, and it's a long, long word for a simple task that I do. I treat heart's rhythm problems. So if someone has an irregular heartbeat, I do procedures to fix that. Or sometimes if patient's heartbeat is too slow, then I put a pacemaker or implant a defibrillator and do ablation procedures. So in simple words, I fix electrical problems within the heart. What do you mean electrical problems in the heart? Okay. There are nerves in the heart. In the heart tissue, there are nerves that are not visible. You can't see them. But the heart beats at a certain rate and in a certain rhythm to it, and that's driven by a pacemaker, which is inbuilt in the heart. And the whole system is driven by a dominant pacemaker, which is in the right top chamber, and then the signals go down to the bottom chambers. And if there is any abnormality in any of this wiring, then we go ahead and I take care of those problems. Whether it's a slow heartbeat in someone, then you try to increase the heartbeat by implanting a pacemaker. Or if someone's heartbeat is too fast at a rate of 250 beats a minute or more or less, and life cannot sustain, then I put in a defibrillator in them. So what can happen if their heart beats too slow or too fast? Life uh, cannot sustain. If a normal human heart beats anywhere between 60 and 90 or 60 and 100, but if, for example, someone's heartbeat is, let's say, less than 20 beats a minute or 30 beats a minute and they are losing consciousness, or they're very fatigued, then uh, you need to bring that heart rate up to help them with their survival and also to help with their quality of life. And if, on the other hand, if the heart rate is more than 200 beats a minute or 250 beats a minute and they are lost consciousness or just collapsed and had a sudden cardiac arrest, then um, I'm, I'm sure you've watched TV where we come and uh, deliver a shock to the heart, 
to get patients back to life. And uh, the defibrillator technology does exactly that, where it jumpstarts the heart in simple terms to get a patient back to life. And oh, sometimes wow. if there is uh, an abnormal connection that someone is born with, an extra nerve in the heart, or multiple short circuits within the heart, then I use radio waves and go ahead and fix in a burn inside the heart muscle to take care of that abnormal pathway or abnormal electrical rhythm. Wow, that's really cool. So you mentioned that some of the symptoms were like fatigue and losing consciousness. Uh, what other symptoms do your patients experience before they come to you? Patients come in with uh, varied uh, symptoms. Some patients come in with chest pain and shortness of breath or weight gain or just uh, swelling in their feet and legs, and that could be a sign of heart failure, or that could also be a sign of atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is an irregular heart rhythm that comes from the top chambers, and it's the most common arrhythmia or irregular heart rhythm that humans have. And so the commonest presentation when someone has atrial fibrillation is palpitations or shortness of breath, chest pain, dizziness. And obviously I talked about patients who suffered cardiac arrest where they lose consciousness. So when they come to the hospital, we take care of them. And before they go home, we implant the defibrillator. Just on that, I want to touch on the difference between women and men in how they present with the symptoms. Women usually with a heart attack, they do not tend to have chest pain. They might have chest pain, but they might present with atypical symptoms like nausea, dizziness, and fatigue. And that could be a symptom of heart attack in women. Whereas in men, it's that crushing chest pain radiating down the left arm and the classic presentation as far as the heart attack goes. So what made you decide that you wanted to be a doctor? I knew I wanted to be a cardiologist or a cardiothoracic surgeon probably in early middle school. Um, and even when we started science or biology, um, I knew right away that I wanted to go into cardiology. And my original plans were to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. And somewhere in medical school or end of it, um, I you know, chose cardiology. And uh, pretty early on, I knew I wanted to be a cardiac electrophysiologist because I love reading EKGs, and um, it's just a fascinating field where you can tie mathematics, analytics, technology, and medicine. So uh, you find that your career is a nice blend of all of the things that you like? Yes, absolutely. It's a perfect field where you can balance. You know, my interest is I love doing procedures, I love analytical thinking, and I also... um, love taking care of patients. So that, for me, that was a perfect, um, you know, field. Yeah. A a previous doctor that I interviewed, he said that he loved art and he he went into plastic surgery because he liked taking care of people, but he also loved art. Mm -hmm. 
So what's your average day like for you? Average day um, of work depends on a weekly schedule. So um, usually, you know, um, depends if I'm in the procedures. So if I'm in the procedures, which is usually two to three days per week, then those days I start at 7 in the morning and usually ends at about 6 to 7 p.m. And uh, sometimes a bit shorter, sometimes a bit longer. You know, the procedural fields are such you do not know until you're going to do a procedure as to what the outcome will be. Most of the cases thankfully go well, but we never, I never like to be rushed. I never want to look at a clock and drive my procedure time. So I take my time to do my procedures, and after the procedures, I take my time to talk to the patient's families. And if that means it's a 12-hour day, I'm totally fine with it. Um, and then on the clinic days, when I'm in the outpatient office, it's a bit shorter. Obviously, the day starts a little bit later, about 8 in the morning or sometimes 8.30. And then uh, my day ends at a predictable time, about 5 o'clock or 5.30 at the latest. So I kind of balance my family life with the procedure days and uh, uh, outpatient office days. So it sounds like you have a lot on your plate, especially with the procedure days. So procedure how do you decompress? Yes. Um, decompression, you, that is a beautiful question, and I'm so glad you're asking this in your podcast because if you read a medical literature or do Google search, physician burnout is widespread. Physicians are going through a phase of burnout, and uh, decompression is the key to have a successful career in medicine and be happy with you know, life in general. And my formula to decompress is threefold. I, my family and my cardiologist husband and my children um, are the huge, powerful antidotes to my long work day. And uh, my friends, I keep in touch with my friends. Um, and I have friends from all age groups. I, I have, uh, I used to coach robotics. Um, and so I have young kids who would call me and call me coach, and then I have uh, older uh, women. I volunteer with them in the community, and so I have friends of all age groups. And other thing is, I do have friends in and out of medicine, and that keeps it very, um, you know, uh, colorful for me. Second, decompression apart from family and friends is taking care of self. I exercise, I am a swimmer, and uh, I swim, and I do yoga. Actually, before the podcast, I was in a yoga session. Uh, one of the physicians, um, she's a surgeon, she hosts um, the yoga session, so I was in the yoga. And then um, I did that at my workplace, you know. And then um, I also run and walk with my family. We go on bike rides together. And the last thing is the community. Give back to the community is, uh, you know, is another thing that I do, and that lifts me up. Um, as a family, we volunteer at food uh, banks, and also as uh, personally, I go and um, volunteer at the safe houses and domestic violence shelters. So that's how I give back to the community. And the last thing, I do write poetry and um, and music is part of me through and through, in and out. So I listen to music. Wow. So do you ever feel 
yourself thinking about work when you're at home? A very good question. Absolutely. Um, as a physician, your patient's life, your patient's stories, they become an integral part of you. So you come home, sometimes, you know, if it's a happy story, obviously I come home, I share, and I celebrate it. But uh, medicine does come with, um, you know, tough uh, stories or sad stories, um, patient sickness, complications, loss of patients. Um, does pull us down and it does pull me down and um, that is the reason to have this antidotes um, where you can just say okay this is the best I did in that scenario and uh, how do I learn lessons from it without feeling too guilty or being too hard on myself so I can bounce back and go back to providing the same care with empathy for my patients the next day. Yeah, that makes sense. So earlier you mentioned that you have uh, two types of days, procedural days and just like a, what was it, uh, days where you outpatient go home by five. Days. Out, mm-hmm. Outpatient. Yeah. So uh, what's the most challenging part of those? Challenge, challenging part of those is um, medicine has changed over time. Um, Right now, the most challenging part is to probably, I would say, the multitude of non-clinical tasks that are placed on physicians, which includes electronic medical records. Electronic medical records are wonderful, but they were put in place without uh, interface or without a common ground to the point where we go to one hospital, you have to use one electronic medical record, and you go to another hospital, you have to remember your passwords, log in, learn that system. And the patient's charts are not transferable between these EMRs. And so while EMR was put forth with a good idea to make physicians' lives simpler, and um, I do not think it was done well um, because it just slows us down just because of lack of a standardized system without any interface. Second challenging part uh, probably is, um, again, due to the change in the healthcare system. Physicians need to be in the policy-making rooms, in the boardrooms, Physicians have to drive medicine, and it's not the corporate corporate healthcare industry, as it's termed, um, is not uh, good in any form, whether it's for the patients, their outcomes, or the physicians and their well-being. So I think you know, challenging part is not on a personal level because it does affect me on a personal level. But uh, these two things, if they were changed and these changes um, were made with more thought, more weight on empathy than economics alone or finances alone, medicine um, would be just beautiful, just like it should be, physician and the patient. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like there's a a lot of problems there that should be fixed. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you could choose one, say the most pressing one, uh, what would it be? I think the most pressing one um, is uh, physicians 
uh, clinician's independence. Clinician or the physician needs to be independent in making their decisions uh, without finances, economics, insurance companies um, stealing our time away from our patients. Yeah, definitely. So now that we've talked about how you are as a doctor today, I want to delve a little bit into your past and ask you how your upbringing contributed to where you are today. A wonderful question again. Absolutely. We wouldn't be here without our parents. Um, very yeah. um, lot of gratitude um, uh, for my upbringing. Um, my father is an engineer, and uh, he, I learned two big things from him. He's an extremely hard worker. I mean, hard work um, is one of his strengths, and uh, I, I take that you know, to heart, and I hope to give it down to my children and say, work hard. There's no substitute for hard work. Second thing in medicine you do need is resilience and perseverance. Um, you need to take the task home. You have to get it done. There will be down days. There will be up days. Ultimately, keep that focus, and that's what I learned from my father. And uh, my mother, um, she uh, had double masters, but she was a homemaker, uh, more of a public policy and English literature. And, very kind human being um, who always volunteered, gave back. Um, she actually went into the community, taught um, you know, education, English language. So she was a very kind and um, you know, human being. And, uh, and I'm very happy and just proud of my parents. Um, I could brag about them all day. <laughs> um, just that upbringing has, has a huge influence on me. Yeah, of course seems like your dad contributed more to your work life and your mom contributed to your home life because you mentioned you uh, volunteer a lot and yes. you definitely work very hard in the hospital. So uh, growing up, did you have any hobbies? Oh, yes. <laughs> I had a lot of hobbies. So I, I had many hobbies. I still have many hobbies. Um, but I'll highlight the four that I really... Uh, you know, to this day, I uh, use, you know, I keep the same hobbies. The two I lost somewhere in the middle. Uh, one is the palately. I collected stamps forever. I remember collecting stamps from uh, probably like middle school or even elementary school, and I collected until I went to medical school, and then I gave my stamps away to my cousin. And um, the other hobby, apart from palately, was numismatics. I collected coins from everywhere. I have family all over the world in different countries, you know, um, Indian families. <laughs> we have huge families, and I have family in Africa, in Europe. So I collected all these coins, and uh, I gave them away to my niece, and she loves them. And um, the two hobbies I still do and passed on to my uh, children are art and poetry. I still write my poetry, and... Um, and I am an avid reader, um, W.B. Yeats, H.W. Uh, Longfellow, and any of the poets. Um, and uh, so I still write poetry, read poetry. And I do art. Um, not a great artist. I do sketch. Uh, my kid, a younger one, actually is better than me. I do sketching, and I do oil on canvas. So, you know, those are the hobbies. Um, I just uh, talked about, I'll mention the top four. 
wow, that sounds really great. Have you published any of your poetry? I write blogs and I have, I'm actually, that's a great question. Actually, I'm working on publishing my poetry. Um, probably it'll take another year. Um, but uh, yes, I write poetry for fun or for my uh, women empowerment talks that I give to domestic violence victims and uh, human trafficking. So I kind of use uh, my poetry for uplifting. Wow, yeah, that would make a, a great book even. Yes. So uh, as a middle school student, what skills, well, I guess I should say high school now, uh, what skills must I develop to be successful in your field? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great question. And I'm so proud of you for doing the um, podcast at such a young age. Keep at it. Uh, you'll listen to so many stories and actually stories will motivate you, inspire you, and even might guide you as you walk along this path. few things in medicine, those are the keys. Um, key components are work hard. Um, don't hesitate uh, from working hard. Um, and keep your life organized. Start doing it now. Keep a schedule organized and prioritize. You will not be able to achieve everything. Uh, so try to prioritize what's important and what's not. Second thing is, remember, medicine more than any other profession, um, in my humble opinion, is a marathon. This is not a sprint. So don't go too fast. Don't go too hard and too fast to where, you know, you break down. Um, just keep it as a marathon. The reason for that is, let us say you score a B in one test or you're, you know, just above average. Don't be hard on yourself. You will chug along. You will get there. Um, But if people don't learn how to bounce back after falling, um, that that they they take, uh, it becomes very hard as you walk along this path. So bouncing back off the ground after falling, imagining medicine as a marathon, organizing your life and prioritizing and work hard and keep your focus on your goals, um, you know, know where you're going and have a path. Alongside, uh, I'll tell you, important things are as you go along and as you rise, don't forget to lift people around you. There will be some who need help. Lift them up as you go along um, because that's how uh, they become your friends and those friends in medical school are very, very important um, and they guide you, they inspire you. And on tough days, they're your you know, uh, resources for uh, healing. Yeah, definitely. So now that we've looked into the present and the past, I want to take a quick look into the future and uh, ask you where you see the medical industry or maybe even your own field in 10 years. I think uh, cardiac electrophysiology is a very uh, exciting field uh, because of technology. I can easily envision in 10 years, the technology will be so advanced that we don't use any radiation for our procedures anymore. And uh, that will be a highlight uh, because right now we do get exposed to radiation doing these procedures. And that will be a highlight for the younger generations as they come along. Second thing will be AI, integration of artificial intelligence in in medicine. And uh, this field will uh, take it on. Um, and advancement in telemedicine 
I think it will go far with remote monitoring, um, you know, heart rate monitors. And the last, the fourth thing is the leadless technology. Right now we put in electrical leads within the heart um, and uh, in 10 years I envision that we will be moving away from the, um, you know, technology with leads and move towards leadless technology. Wow, that sounds fascinating. But uh, do you think that any of the problems that you brought up before uh, will be closer to being fixed? Yes, and for that, um, my message to the younger generations, including my own children who want to go into medicine, is please know your finances. Do an MD-MBA. If you want to go into medicine, do an MD-MBA. Become a physician leader know the finances, know the economics, and tie them to the bedside and uh, empathy and patient care. And that's the only way to fight this. Wow, that's really great. So uh, final question. And mm-hmm. uh, I know that you've sprinkled some advice to children aspiring to be doctors all throughout the podcast, and it's all been really good. But do you have any final advice for those children? Final advice is work hard, uh, bounce back, and uh, look at it as a marathon, and you will love it. There's no other profession like medicine. Um, This is the most beautiful profession filled with gratitude. So along the way, don't don't stop having fun. It's important to have fun in life. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really loved uh, doing this episode, and I that my listeners will love it too. I appreciate uh, you taking this time and for the invite and you have a wonderful rest of the weekend. You too.